following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Uh, the text for our morning is Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. We're continuing on, and what I mentioned last week would be a brief three-week mini-series on this topic of prayer. And so it's Luke 11, verses 5 to 13, and the title of the message is simply, How to Pray, Part 2. And it reads, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let's pray. Father, teach us how to pray. Father, teach us how to pray like you desire us to pray. And open our eyes to understanding your heart of receiving our prayers in light of the story that your son told many years ago. And out of that understanding, grant to us a faith that we result in bold and courageous prayers, prayers of faith that seek from your hand. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we looked at what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 11. After watching Jesus pray, the disciples seem to have been so moved that they asked him, teach us how to pray. Teach us what we ought to say when we pray to God. And in response, Jesus gives them what's famously now been called the Lord's Prayer in verses 2 to 4. The first half of the prayer, as we saw last week, orients us properly toward God. Uh, At the beginning, he calls us to address God as our Father. It describes this amazing intimacy and security that we have when we come to him. But right after that, we say, hallowed be your name, which reminds us that God is unlike anyone else in our life. He's reserved within our hearts to have the highest place of honor. He alone is God. Then we saw this prayer, your kingdom come. Reminding us that prayer is not about dumping our wish list on God, a bucket list of everything that we want him to do like a divine Santa Claus. But it is to come with him and saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. It is a heart that comes to God heavy with burdens, saying there are a lot of needs that I have in my life. And I know exactly what I want, what I want you to do. But I come with the spirit of submission to say, uh, what is it that you want from my life, God? What is it that you want to do in me? I'm here to listen as much as I'm here to talk. And then in the second half, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us 
not into temptation. The second half is basically now the invitation to ask of God. What are the things that you need of God? We don't have to grovel. We don't have to feel embarrassed or ashamed of bringing the things that we need. But as a loving father, he wants to provide for us. And so Jesus gives us this open invitation. Pour out your heart to me. Let me know the desires of your heart, the things that keep you up at night, the things that you long for. God desires to provide them, not only our physical needs, our daily bread, but also our spiritual needs. And as I mentioned, you might not have really caught it, but at the very end of that message last week, I said, and part of that idea of praying in this way is that we pray and then we watch with anticipation what God's answer is going to be. And without that watching, without that anticipation, we cannot develop a rich and mature prayer life. In Acts chapter 12, there's this very interesting story where Herod imprisons Peter. This is right after Herod killed James, the son of the brother of John. You know, he was one of the sons of thunder that we saw in Luke chapter 10. So he's killed, uh, he's, he's killed James, the brother of John. And so there is a very real threat on Peter's life as he is the second of the apostles to be imprisoned. And so the church gathers for this all-night prayer meeting at Mary's house. And miraculously, Peter gets released from prison when God sends an angel to his jail cell. And he finds himself in this empty, abandoned street in the middle of the night, and he doesn't know where to go. So he goes over to Mary's house. Now, Mary is not the mother of Jesus, or is she Mary and Martha Mary? Uh, She is actually Mary, the mother of John Mark, Uh, who was actually the gospel writer of the Gospel of Mark. And so, interestingly, that's the same house where this prayer meeting is happening on Peter's behalf. And he knocks at the door of Mary's house. And in Acts chapter 12, verses 13 to 14, we find these words, And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And you can picture this. This frantic girl excitedly interrupting this really intense all-night prayer meeting and screaming, Peter's here, Peter's here. You won't believe it. And the funny thing is they don't believe it. In verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. It's, It's this really bizarre scene where they are praying for Peter's release and Peter is standing at the gate And they're saying, you are crazy, woman. Uh, Leave us alone and quit bothering us because we got to get back to praying for our brother Peter's freedom. (laughs) The answer to their prayer is standing at the gate, but they don't believe it. And so they keep praying. Um, It's interesting, you know, that I think that probably describes a lot of our prayer lives as well. Uh, We pray out of duty but without much expectation that anything is going to change as a result of our prayers. That's sort of the dirty little secret about prayer, isn't it? Is there's so many passages in the Bible about praying that we can't really sidestep it. We, we know that if you're a real Christian, you ought to pray. So we pray. Pray before meals. Pray when we have a need. But the nagging little secret is, do we really believe that prayer does anything? Do we really have any honest expectation that my world changes after that prayer has been uttered? In fact, let me just ask you simply and honestly, do you remember the last answer to prayer that you've received? 
from God. I suspect that for a lot of you, you can't even give a testimony like that of the last answered prayer. Um, and in truth, even if God answers the prayer, you know, maybe it was about an illness that you had a recovery from, or maybe it was that job opportunity that you asked God and you got it. But even after you receive something like that, I think in truth for a lot of us, there's still a bit of skepticism, a little bit of doubt going, was that really because of my prayer? Or was that just what was going to happen anyway? You know, that was just the natural course of events. I think this is precisely the attitude that Jesus is trying to address here in Luke 11 when he tells this story. The story begins with this interesting phrase, which of you? Which of you? Now, Jesus actually uses this phrase a lot in the Gospels. Which of you this? Which of you that? Whenever he begins a question with which of you, it almost always means that what's about to follow is a ridiculous scenario that the obvious answer to that question would be none of us would do that. None of us could do that. So I'll give you a couple examples of it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says, And which of you, by being anxious, could add a single hour to his lifespan? Again, it's ridiculous. It's rhetorical. The answer is obviously no one. Uh, you know, then the most worrisome people would have the longest lifespan. But we know it doesn't work out. That way. In fact, usually they're the ones that die first because of all the adrenaline. and everything. We don't have to get into all that, but... The Luke chapter 14, verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Again, a ridiculous scenario. I mean, of course you would. Who is going to let your kid die in a ditch because it's the Sabbath? It's a ridiculous scenario. And so, by asking this question, which of you, Jesus is setting the stage for something that the average person would never do. This is an extreme situation. So we find this at the start of the story, this person, this host in a very difficult situation. He's got an out-of-town visitor who hasn't eaten, and he has no bread in the house, and it's midnight, and he's got to feed this guy. The first question that comes to mind is, why is this even a scenario? I mean, why is this request being made at midnight at such an inconvenient hour? And in those days, the, the answer is pretty simple. They, people would either travel very early in the morning or they would travel in the afternoon or evening hours when they could avoid the midday heat. And so if this guy was on a pretty lengthy journey, it wouldn't be surprising at all for someone to arrive at their destination pretty late at night, even if it meant midnight. But regardless of how common it may be, this created a very socially difficult situation for this host. Now, since ancient times, hospitality in the Middle East was legendary, and it is even to this day. A few months back when I was preaching in Luke 7 on the story of the immoral woman, I mentioned how back in 2001, I had a chance to go to the Middle East and travel through around four or five different countries out there. And when we got to the Sinai Desert in Egypt, uh, we would just... Uh, go and visit these Bedouin sheep herders. Uh, utter, totally unexpected, utterly unannounced, uninvited. And we would just show up at their tent. And it was just amazing to me, the hospitality that they showed. I mean, they're just kind of staring at you know, us, a bunch of these Asian guys that show up out of nowhere. But, you know, like, categorically, every single one of them set a feast for us. I mean, 
some of them literally just slaughtered an animal right there for us, like a goat or something. And you could see the women frantically preparing. We felt like we were family coming for a Thanksgiving feast or something. But in truth, we were just strangers to these people. And it just blew my mind. I, I was just so intrigued by this that I wanted to almost like sort of push the limits to see how far I could take this. Like I wanted to say something like, yeah, the go- yeah give me your camel, that one camel. I want it or something like that. You know, it's just unbelievable how they would bend over backward to help you out. And that was true in Jesus' day as well. Um, in Middle Eastern tradition, if somebody shows up at your door, you've got to prepare them a meal, okay? It's not even about hunger. It's about etiquette. You've got to prepare a meal for them. And the opposite side of that is you have to eat the food. <laughs> even if you're not hungry, you, you've got to eat it no matter what as a sign of respect. Um, so this guy finds himself in this really tough spot. He doesn't know what to do because he has to prepare a meal for this guy and he has no bread. He has nothing in his cupboards. And so, I, I, you know, I couldn't really sympathize with this until I actually lived in Africa for about five years as a missionary. As some of you know, we lived in this very rural part of Kenya. And uh, during our years there, we had to host a lot of different visitors who would come from all over. And these visitors would typically, you know, to get from the capital city of Nairobi to where we were was anywhere from about a 7 to 11-hour journey, depending on what mode of transportation you took. So typically by the time that these visitors arrived to our mission compound, uh, they were usually starving. They were really hungry, and they usually came really late at night, you know, anywhere from 10 to midnight to 1 in the morning. And so as a host missionary, we were constantly worrying about that, like preparing a welcoming meal for them. Because, like, in truth, in the States, we don't even think about this. This is is a non-issue. If you get a visitor that comes at an inconvenient hour, you just take them to a restaurant and you get them fed. Or at the least, you can go to a supermarket deli and get some, you know, pre-made food or something like that, pre-packaged food, and you could feed your guest with that. But, like, in a place like Africa, like it was in Jesus' day, there was no supermarket. There was no convenience store. There were no restaurants. And so you basically are working hard and feverishly to prepare this meal for your visitors when they come. And this is exactly the situation that this guy was in. He had nowhere to turn, no supermarket, no convenience store, no restaurant. So he exercises the only option that is really available to him. He goes to his neighbor and asks for a helping hand. Now, what we know is that in those days, when you are a visitor to a village, you're not just a visitor to that host that is receiving you in their house. You're a visitor to the entire village. There's the sort of community village uh, culture there where, you know, if I don't have what can make this person comfortable, it's sort of the responsibility of all my neighbors and everyone to help me out to make this person welcome in our community. And so... This probably was a pretty common situation. I don't have any food, and I have some guests, so I just go over to my neighbors, like borrowing a cup of sugar, right, or a few eggs, saying, you know, help me out here, brother. Give me a, give me a few loaves of bread, because I've got some visitors. Probably everyone in the village had experienced something like this, being in a tight situation like this, and so it's like, you know, we have each other's backs. 
You know, when you need something, you just come to my door so that even if it's midnight, now obviously the midnight situation is a bit of an imposition, but up to now, everything that Jesus is saying is pretty standard stuff, you know? This is all just regular life in the village that we're all familiar with, but it is at this point that things take an unexpected turn in the story. In verse 7, it says, And you will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up, get up and give you anything. So the host knocks on the door, and he basically says, Friend, help me out, man. Uh, do me a solid, and give me some of the extra bread that you have in your kitchen. I've got some out-of-town company, and I don't have any food to offer him. Now, this is where the ridiculous part comes in. Uh, it's not the host who is acting ridiculous. It's this neighbor. This neighbor does something that is utterly unacceptable and breaks all the rules of hospitality by responding rudely to this friend. Uh, Don't bother me. Leave me alone. Go away. And he gives two reasons why he can't help this guy out. He says, one, my door is already locked. And number two, my children are asleep. Now, some of you who are parents of little kids are very sympathetic to this guy. Uh, you know, who makes this argument that he doesn't want his sleeping kids to be disturbed. You say, yeah, you come ringing my doorbell at midnight and you wake up my kids and you're going to hear from me too. But in light of this desperate situation that this guy is in and the binding rules of hospitality, anyone who was in Jesus' audience listening to the story would have felt like it was a very lame and unacceptable excuse. You know, yeah, your kids may have to wake up in the disturbance, but this is just part of the rules of hospitality you got to do this for him. But the other excuse is far more ridiculous and really presses the point. The door is already locked, and he can't open it. Now, imagine if you came to my house unannounced, and you were to knock on my door late at night, and you were to say something like, uh, you know, Pastor Steve, it's me, John, from ICC. I I know it's really late, but I have this emergency, and I couldn't reach you by phone, and I really need your help. Now imagine if you heard on the other side of the door my voice saying, please, go away. I wish I could help you, but I already locked the front door. (laughs) So could you just leave me alone? Well, that's exactly how ridiculous this would have sounded to Jesus' original audience. His audience would have clearly recognized that there was something really wrong and messed up with this guy, this neighbor, who was acting in this unreasonable manner. There's no way around it. This neighbor is an unreasonable and selfish loser. And so Jesus was, in essence, asking his audience, who among you would have acted like this neighbor if this guy knocked on your door? And the answer is obvious. None of us would dare treat our friend in this manner. It would be utterly unthinkable to behave like this. Well, having made these lame excuses, Jesus tells us that eventually this deadbeat neighbor does end up opening the door anyway and giving the bread that this guy needs. And the reason why he finally relents is because of this interesting word, impudence. It says, because of his impudence. Now, another way that you could actually translate this word is fear of shame. Fear of shame. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. 
This guy cannot be motivated out of any sense of obligation because of the cultural norms. Nor can he be, his arm be twisted out of friendship. None of these things really seem to matter to this guy. But ultimately, he's going to sit there and angrily shuffle out of bed, grumbling and complaining the whole way. He's going to open the door and shove the bread in your face and give you the bread. Why? Because of no other reason than he doesn't want to face the village the next morning when the gossip goes around and it becomes clear that this guy acted in this horrendous way. And so if for no other reason than out of fear of the shame, this guy will do this thing for his friend. Now, some of you may have heard me share the story before, but it fits so well with the story that I want to share it again, is that back in uh, my seminary days when I was studying at Trinity over there in Deerfield, I took this Greek class where every Monday we'd have to take this quiz. And so every Monday the professor says, everyone take out a piece of paper, number 1 through 20, and we'd have this vocabulary quiz in Greek. And, uh, you know, I, I'm very absent-minded, much to my wife's misery. You know, I, mean, I forget everything. And so I forget a piece of paper every single week. I, I used to take notes on my laptop then. And so I never carried a notebook or anything around with me in my backpack. So every single Monday morning, I embarrassedly, I have to ask my, my classmate, this guy named Luke, uh, for a piece of paper. And at the beginning of the semester, it was like, no big deal. How much does a piece of paper cost? Like two cents? I was like, oh, fine. You know, here you go, Steve. No problem. Uh, that was on, at the beginning of the semester. As the semester wore down, I could tell from his body language that he was getting really upset at me. And so it was like, at some point, I, I, I figure what must have been going on in his head is like, what is wrong with this guy? Like, uh, are you an adult or what? Like, can you just not remember to bring your own piece of paper? Like, why? Am, I mean, do I have to supply a piece of paper for you to the very end of the semester? He did. You know? Yeah, he did have to actually do it because I don't think I ever brought a piece of paper once the entire semester. But, and when I saw the expression on his face, like, I felt horrible, you know? I, I didn't want to ask him, but what could I do? Like, I'm not going to take a zero on the quiz out of this socially awkward situation. And so no matter how bad I felt about it, to the very end of the semester, I asked him. And no matter how much he felt bad about it, to the very end of the semester, he gave me the piece of paper, you know? Because, I mean, what is he going to do? I mean, how bad does that make him look like? We're both pastors in training. He goes, no, not going to give you this two-cent piece of paper. you got to learn your lesson, buddy. You know, like, you know, so it was this socially awkward situation all the way around. But to the very end of the class, he gave me the piece of paper. Now, I, I want to ask you that. Have you ever had to call on someone for a favor that you knew that they weren't going to be really that happy about honoring for you? Uh, and here's the thing, though, that Jesus seems to be saying. You will do it. You will do that thing. You will make that request if you have no other options and you're desperate enough. You'll do it. When you really need something, you will be willing to endure a certain level of social awkwardness in order to get something that you really need. Uh, I think a classic scenario is, have you ever had to ask somebody for a, a letter of recommendation? <laughs> you know how that conversation goes, right? I mean, I remember in undergrad, my undergrad days, having to go to these professors down at University of Illinois and asking them for letters of recommendation for my medical school application. And I just, I felt horrible. You know, you make this office appointment, and these guys are so busy, and they've got so much on their plate. 
And the second you ask them, you kind of see that look in their eyes, like, you know, like another referral letter. But, you know, you got to do it because you got to apply to medical school, and the medical school requires these letters. So no matter how much you hate doing it, you do it. You do the dirty deed because you're desperate, and you don't know where else to turn. I don't think there's any doubt that this neighbor was, must have been known in the community. Like, that guy's a real jerk, you know? He's a, he's a real horrible person. Like, you don't want to interact with him as much as possible. But this guy will go to his house and still ask him for bread because he says, he's the only guy I can turn to. He's the only one with bread in the village, so I have to go to him. And this is what Jesus seems to be saying to us through this story. If you are willing to do this to the friends in your life that may be reluctant to help you because you know that they can help you, why is it that you won't come to your heavenly Father who longs to help you and give you the things you need? Why is it that you are so resistant to prayer and asking me for the things that you need in your life? It's as if Jesus is saying, you'll turn to everybody else before you turn to me. I am like your last option. I am like the final person you go to when every other option has failed you. And Jesus is asking, why is that? Why don't you look to me? This is why right after the parable, Jesus says these words in verses 9 to 13. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened to you. What father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. You can see a clear contrast that Jesus is making between our flawed, sinful fathers and our perfect, heavenly father. It's, he's saying, you just imagine this unimaginable scenario of a father being asked by his son, can I have some fish because I'm hungry? And the father going, here's your fish, and throws a snake. because goes, ha ha, gotcha, you know? I mean, that's ridiculous. It's an utterly ridiculous situation. No, you can't even imagine a father that evil that he would throw a snake on his son, fooling him into thinking that it was food. But here's what I think Jesus is saying. You can't imagine your earthly father doing something like that to you. But what about your heavenly father? You know, when it comes to God, I think for a lot of us, we're not really sure. We're not really sure if he has our best intentions in his heart. We're not really sure that he doesn't want to hurt us in some ways and that he truly has our back. And what Jesus is calling out of us is a heart of faith to believe in the character of our God who loves us and cares for us and is to be trusted. I think a part of the problem with trusting God in this way is the fact that sometimes our prayers seem to go unheeded, that we do pray about things. And it's not like we get instant answers to everything we're seeking. Um, if he really cares about me as you claim he does, why does it feel at times like I'm praying to a brick wall 
My prayers just fall right off the ceiling and right back down onto the floor. Uh, If you look at verse 9, there is this implication of a certain perseverance needed in prayer. You can see this progression that Jesus is laying out of starting with just simply asking to this actively seeking, then to this picture of a person knocking and knocking until the door is finally opened. And the tense of these verbs actually is such in the Greek that they imply not just a one-time action, but something that is done continually. In other words, we could actually more accurately translate these as keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. But this raises a dilemma, I think, in a lot of us, is if God really has my back, if He really cares about me, Why do I need this perseverance? Why is it that I have to keep asking? It seems rather cruel. Um, Why why does God do this to me? Why does he make me feel like I have to grovel and keep begging until he finally will do this for me? Philip Yancey expresses his own feelings about this. As he writes, As I ponder Jesus' stories, I cannot help wondering why God places such a premium on persistence. If I find it tedious to repeat the same requests over and over, surely God tires of hearing them. Why must I pound on the door? Why won't a single sincere request suffice? I think he asked the question that all of us wonder. If God loves me, why does it feel like I have to pound down the door? to get a reluctant neighbor to answer my request. Well, if we see God as nothing more than a divine ATM machine, that this question makes a lot of sense to us, you know? And it's this idea like, you know, all I should have to do is enter my PIN number and the cash should come out. Like, why isn't prayer that simple? Ask and you will receive. Why does God ask me to keep asking, to keep persevering? It's because prayer is not about God being an ATM machine. It's not about Him being a divine Santa Claus or a cosmic butler giving us whatever we want. The design of prayer is so much deeper and so much bigger than that. Philip Yancey goes on explaining prayer in this way. We may approach God with some material benefit in mind, And sometimes, blessedly, we receive it. But in the very act of praying, we also open up a channel that God can use in transforming us, in making us good. Persistent prayer changes me by helping me see the world and my life through God's eyes. As the relationship progresses, I realize that God has a clearer picture of what I need than I do. You know, When we think about this picture of persistent prayer, keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking, there is this danger of hearing that message as nothing more than just stubbornly and pig-headedly pounding on the door, unthinkingly just insisting and saying, God, give me, give me, give me, and I'm not going to stop until you give me. That is not the picture of persistent prayer that God is giving us in Scripture is harass him enough, nag him enough, bother him enough, and he will finally relent 
and give you what you want. The picture of persistent prayer in Scripture is entering into a conversation with God, an extended conversation with Him, in which we make our needs known, but also in making our requests to Him, allowing God to speak to us about our requests and helping us to understand that maybe the answer is not as straightforward as God giving me whatever it is that I want from Him. That's what Jesus taught us in that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Sometimes God's love is shown to us by not giving me what I ask for because we're asking for the wrong things. This is a part of this conversation that we enter into with God is in truth, sometimes I'm just asking for the wrong things in my life. And it takes a season of prayer for me to come around to realizing that. Because when I first make the request, all I'm thinking is, I know what's best for my life. I know exactly what will make me happy. And God, if you really love me, you'll give me this thing. So give it to me. But God says, in essence, is saying, keep praying. Keep praying. And we need to talk. And I need you to come around to understanding this thing that you're asking for is going to actually hurt you more than help you. George MacDonald puts it like this. A God that should fail to attend to one single prayer, the feeblest or worst, I cannot believe in. But a God that would grant every request of every man would be an evil God. That is no God but a demon. You know, if God did everything you asked, this world would be hell. Right now, I'd pray that every one of you be turned into goats. <laughs> if God did that, I'd, I'd have a, such a fun time. It'd be so interesting. And you would have hopes, right? This is, this is obviously not the picture of paradise. This is not the picture of a good creation for a God to bend to our every will. And so part of this picture of persistent prayer, one of the reasons why I need to ask and ask and ask is because sometimes God needs to do a work in my own heart to help me to recognize that even the asking is revealing something in my heart that needs to be corrected. Sometimes we may be asking for the right things for the wrong reasons. I must have this. I cannot be complete without this. Unless I have this thing, my life is empty and I will never be full. I demand it from you, God. I am entitled to this. You owe me this, God. You owe me this much. You see, we could be asking for good things with the wrong heart. And I think this is particularly true of things that we want desperately. And by persevering in prayer and entering into this conversation with God, God has an opportunity to challenge and purify these motives in our asking, in the things that we long for. You know, back in the day, I remember that I entered the season when I got into a little bit of panic about getting into medical school, you know? Uh, I don't want to get into the whole story of it, but I had lost my MCAT books, and I couldn't study all summer, and it was an entire train wreck unfolding right before my eyes. And I began to think, oh my goodness, I am not going to get into medical school. I'm not. And that sent me into this pretty intense season of prayer 
where I was crying. I was even fasting. I was crying out to God saying, God, please, please, please let me get into medical school. While I was praying that prayer, God was beginning to do a work in my heart, revealing some junk that was in there that he needed to deal with. Because ultimately, I do believe that it was God's will for me to get into medical school and become a doctor. But I think what he was putting a finger on was he was saying, you know, uh, why do you want this so badly? Why are you fasting? Why are you crying out to me with tears to get into medical school? And when I really examined my heart, I realized it wasn't so much that I could be medically trained so I could go out there as a missionary doctor at that point in time, but in truth, it was because of the prestige, because it would make me look good, being a doctor. And in truth, the real reason that God revealed in the midst of that prayer season was um, I had been so vocal and so public about the fact that I had received a calling from God, that I was going to be this missionary doctor. So my pray- my, the desperation of my prayer, I realized, was really coming from a place of embarrassment. <laughs> like, what, what does it mean if I go there and go, yeah, I thought that was God's calling on my life, but I didn't get in, you know, and then I go, and I have to pr- go to the church with my tail between my legs and try to refigure out my life. So really, my desperation was my reputation. My reputation was on the line. If I don't get into medical school, I look like a fool. And it was that work that God was trying to do in my heart, you know, let that go. Let that go. That is not the heart with which I'm going to grant your request. Um, To pray with perseverance and persistence is to let our heart's desires be known to God. That's okay because that's our starting point. That's all I know. In my ability to understand my life, that's all I can bring to Him are the desires of my heart the things that I feel I need in my life. But I do so with this humility that invites God to speak into that. Dallas Willard writes this, It is a great advantage of requesting in prayer that it not be a fail-safe mechanism. For human finitude means that we are all limited in knowledge, in power, in love, and in powers of communication. Even disregarding ill will... It is small wonder that we do not and often cannot grant or be given what is requested of us or by us. We do not know enough, and our desires are not perfect enough for us safely to be given everything we want and ask for. It was interesting. Um, when I was driving home for the ministry center yesterday, uh, you know, Jude, my son Judah and my daughter Bethany were in the car with me. And my son Judah, just as we're pulling out of the parking lot, just asked this question out of the blue. And he's like, "Um, how do you know when it's God's voice or if it's just your own thoughts in your head? (laughs) That's what my son, you know, he's third grader, okay, if you don't know. He's only in third grade. And he asked me, "Uh, how do I know when it's God speaking to me or if it's just a thought in my own head? And I was like, how do I even get into this with this kid, you know? Like, I don't even know where to begin. But I was blown away by that question. Because in truth, I think that's the same question all of us are wondering, you know? You're, you're talking about entering into this conversation with God. But 
How do I know when it's God speaking to me? And I don't have a simple answer for that other than to tell you just enter that conversation. And I believe as you enter it, there will be the self-attesting authority to the voice of God that you will come to recognize in your prayer life. And I found that to be true in my own life, that sometimes as I'm praying about these things that I desperately want to happen in my life, in the life of our church, in the life of my friends, in my family, my children, that sometimes out of the blue, you know, this idea comes in my head. And I don't even know where it came from. And as I really think about it, I realize even after hours of just nothing more than self-reflection, I don't think that insight would have come to me. I was just praying about a conversation that I had recently with a friend that was really bothering me. But something about that conversation just didn't go well. And I couldn't put my finger on it, what it was. And as I just lifted that conversation to God and was just praying about it, it was like the lights were turning on, left and right, and God began to expose some pretty deep motives in my heart that were driving that conversation that he was leading me to repent about. And when I really think about that, I go, I don't think that's just me problem-solving and thinking about my life and trying to figure my life out, but I believe that was the Holy Spirit coming and doing what only he could do leading me in that way. And I think that is this invitation to persistent prayer that God is inviting you. It's not a platinum card, carte blanche, saying, yeah, ask and I'll give you anything. That's not the invitation of Jesus. But what the invitation is is this. You have a Father in heaven who loves you and who wants only the best for your life. He wants to give you only good things But in order to receive these things, we need to talk. We need to go on a journey together. And we need to explore some things in your heart that you may frankly not really be ready to receive right now or understand. But at the end of the day, as you submit yourself to this conversation with me, I am going to do ultimately in your life something far better than maybe your initial request to me could have ever envisioned. As was said at the beginning of our service, immeasurably more than you could ever ask. You're shooting too low. You have no idea what I want to do in your life and the life of your loved ones. Let us pray. The implicit message of this story that Jesus told that day is carrying with it, I think, an undeniable tone of disappointment. And I think that disappointment comes from Jesus, in essence, saying to us, um, man, you know, when you're in a real bind and you're in a tough situation, you have the go-to people in your life that you lean on. And frankly, sometimes you lean on them too much. You know, like whether it's a parent, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a best friend, you know, like when you're really in a bind and you're in a moment of need, you're pretty clever about it. You know, you know where to go to get what you need in life. And so you keep going to those wells. But I think what Jesus is saying is, but you don't come to me. Why is that, that you don't come to me? Why is it that you look for help in every other corner of your life, from every other relationship, but not from me? When you have a Father in heaven, who loves you immeasurably more than you could ever understand. And I've got your back. I, you know, I am so 
intensely concerned about you, and I want to help you, but you just don't come to me. You exhaust all your other options, and prayer becomes that final last-ditch effort in the 11th hour when your life is falling apart. But what Jesus is inviting us to is a heart of faith that turns to Him first. But here's the thing about turning to Him. I think part of the frustration is He's not an ATM machine. He's not just going to spit out the cash when we want it, like a sugar daddy. He says, you know, what I'm inviting you to is not just a carte blanche access to my power, but to a conversation with me. And I need you to have the brokenness and humility to allow me to speak into your life and to correct some things that need correcting. And then out of that, as I have an opportunity to do a work in your heart, you may come to that place where I can give you some things that you really want. But maybe one of the things that God is saying right now is, you know, in some ways you're, you're just so kind of misdirected that you're asking for all the wrong things in your life and you're angry at me because I'm not giving them to you and you think I'm the problem. But maybe God is saying you're the problem, you know? Your heart is so wayward that you're asking for the very things that are just going to hurt you. Or maybe what God is saying is, you know, you're asking for some legitimate things, some good things, but I need to do a work in your heart before I can really give these things to you. Because in truth, if I give this to you right now, you're just going to idolize these things. These things are going to pull you away from me. You worship these things too much. And you need to first surrender them to me. And so I just want to invite you right now, if you could come to God, what are the things that are the burdens on your heart? What are the prayer requests that you feel like are going through seasons of being unanswered? And maybe you're upset at God saying, you know, don't you care? Don't you care? And God is saying, you don't have no idea how much I care. You have no idea how much I want to work in your life. But I want to do immeasurably more than you could even understand in your life. So you need to surrender that control to me. You need to let me take your life in my hands and do what I desire to do in you. And when you do that by faith, I'm going to do a work in you that you could never imagine or believe. Let us pray.